Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. So welcome to this IPR talk on the Arctic Indigenous Seas, selected highlights from the unknown. My name is James Copestake. I'm Professor of um, International Development here in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath. And I'm delighted to uh, be able to welcome uh, Dr. Tero Mustonan, uh, who tells me he's speaking from uh, the village of Sielki in northern Karelia in Finland, uh, which is close to the Arctic Circle. So probably the most northerly speaker we've had um, uh, uh, in these IPR lectures. And uh, Tero is a passionate defender of the worldview and cosmology of his people, coordinator of the indigenous Eurasian knowledge for the Arctic biodiversity assessment, and uh, works for the award-winning uh, Snow Change Cooperative, a nonprofit organization based in Flindland uh, with members across the Arctic. And he's worked as a coordinator of the indigenous Eurasian knowledge for the Arctic biodiversity assessment. Tero is widely known, much respected as a scholar of Arctic biodiversity, climate change and indigenous affairs, uh, and has a range of publications, including the, uh, the groundbreaking uh, work on the Eastern Sami Atlas, Snowscapes and Dreamscapes. He's won several human rights and environmental awards, and I won't embarrass you um, by listing them, Tero. Um, and, um, he coordinates the festivals of the Northern fishing traditions that are organized by Snow Change to bring together traditional and indigenous fishermen um, across Eurasia uh, every couple of years. And uh, he tells me that it's um, minus 17 degrees C outside and there's 1.2 meters of snow on the ground. And uh, with that introduction, um, uh, I'm delighted to hand the microphone over to you, Tero. And um, you have uh, 35 minutes, and then we look forward to uh, a question and answer session. Well, Professor Kopstek, James, thank you for that wonderful <clears throat> introduction. Um, and all of you people out there, I hope you can hear me. And uh, thank you for joining today. Also, of course, thank you to the organizers for enabling this way of exchanging and thinking about the Arctic and the Borel and especially the oceans <clears throat> that we are today trying to accomplish. Just to clear a couple of things out of the way, um, Snow Change, as, as you heard, is an NGO and a network of indigenous and local communities here in the North. Myself, I'm a Finnish person. I, I, uh, I live here in the Selkie uh, village, but the uh, Finns are related to the Sami indigenous peoples by Finno-Ukric linguistic connection. And these kind of uh, cultural groups that I will talk about today in this part of the world are <clears throat> the non-Indo-European languages of uh, Northeastern Europe and from Western Siberia all the way to Finland. Uh, for example, in our village, we have the uh, cultural heritage that inspired J.R.R. Tolkien voice, Lord of the Rings, Elven languages, and some of the uh, storylines in the big book that you might know there in the UK. 
so without further ado, I have 10 slides for you and I, I will try to convey and, and take you on a journey of the Arctic oceans and the indigenous and traditional engagement with those areas. And then we'll have a wonderful time for questions and um, points you may want to raise or any other comments you want to take. So as is the fashion these days, let me share the screen and let's let's get the slides up. So just a moment. And um, there we are, the Arctic indigenous seas. Now, when I received this invitation to speak with you today, uh, the world was different. We are today in a very fragile moment in the Arctic and in the world. Peace has been shattered with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and following that 24th of February um, events, <clears throat> we have on the other hand been able to release the IPCC Working Group 2 report that I was one of the lead authors on, but far more importantly, uh, this war has uh, altered much of the Arctic collaborations, including indigenous um, people's exchanges to do with Russia and the rest of the world. Arctic Council, Nordic Council, Barents area co collaborations and many others have now been disbanded or suspended. And that's why everything that I will communicate to you today happens in a completely new context. In fact, probably the only stable and, and long-term vision we have it has to do with the indigenous peoples because they are the traditional owners and um, um, <clears throat> peoples as well as traditional communities like Selkie that have been living for hundreds of years in this region. I wanted to convey to you some points today about uh, dividing the world of coastal and marine issues to do with the Arctic <clears throat> indigenous peoples into how do we know uh, or how do indigenous peoples and traditional peoples know about the north and especially the ocean and then how do they belong and finally what are the new challenges and new issues that are facing um, uh, these, these regions and, and the ocean herself. Uh, in this photo taken by my colleague Matthew uh, Drakenmiller in the US, this is a coast of Alaskan uh, Bering Sea, you can see the, of course, in some ways stereotypical landscapes, but on the other hand, very timely uh, view of the topic at hand, which is how <clears throat> sea ice cryosphere, which is of course snow and ice, and then the land interact and change in the Arctic. And I, I wanted to start from here by stressing the fact that uh, Arctic indigenous peoples on their marine environments and northern peoples can only uh, survive through knowledge. Only by knowing the ocean and these um, intricate details of how the ecosystems are functioning, how the food chains happen, how the animals migrate, stay, behave, and so on and so on, we have been able to see the continuous unbroken uh, human civilizations in this part of the world, which are in some ways also the harshest environments on the planet. The only perhaps similar unbroken cultural connections can be found in Australia. And 
some other remote remote parts of the planet. In Australia, we know that indigenous Australians can date their existence, cultural heritage, and belonging to the land at least 44,000 years. And in many parts uh, in the Arctic, we do know that the same kind of connection has been there for 8,000, 11,000 um, years as well. So just before I or before I get to the actual ways of knowing or how some of these things have been articulated by northern indigenous peoples, and I have a trait for you on the polar um, notions also from the Pacific. Let's take a very quick look at the map. Where are we and what's going on? So this is a very overall map where the North Pole is centered at the middle. Hopefully this will give you a little bit of a new uh, outlook on the region. The only point that I'm trying to make here is that the Arctic, including indigenous peoples that live here and traditional people are all very um, uh, distinct. There are over 40 different linguistic and cultural groups. And I'm speaking to you from here. This is the Finno-Ukric world that I was talking about. The Sami up here in the Arctic, and then rest of us, the Finns, Karelians, uh, Veps, Komi, Hanti, Mansi, Nenets people, and all the way uh, to Yukakir people who are our Uralic linguistic uh, cousins uh, here. And then in North America, we can see the, the Inupiaq, Yupiaq, Athabaskan, <clears throat> Tlingit, Haida, um, and Dene languages, as well as then switching again into the Inuit in Greenland and, and Canadian Arctic. So this view hopefully gives you some of the complexity and thoughts and ideas that I will convey to you today in the sense that how diverse, not only the environment in the Arctic, but also the cultural uh, indigenous peoples and groups are. And this is one of the ways from our side, this is a Karelian and Eastern Finnish um, conception of, of the ocean and the sea. I would like to start with this uh, also with the photo of um, from the Baltic with our fishing communities about 100 years ago. You will see whole communities, families taking part in the harvest of the Baltic herring. And then on the left-hand side, you can see a poem or actually a small extraction of a poem. And the most important thing that I want to start with here is the notion that uh, in the poem, which is translated below, there are these cultural notions of mother of the sea. And how does that mother, as our old people were thinking about the oceans, come forwards? She is blowing in the wind, swept and seen in the gales. And in this powerful oral poetry that, uh, that's presented here, you can see some of the notions of how linguistic diversity, cultural knowledge and the sea is very deeply connected. So before we go deep into the Arctic issues, uh, I'll surprise you hopefully with an ocean from the South Pacific. Some of you may know that the Polynesian peoples are probably the most traveled ocean uh, navigators in the world, stretching all the way from, <clears throat> in some ways from Japan into Hawaii, uh, Fiji, uh, Tonga, and of course, Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
What most people do not know is that there's another polar peoples uh, that traveled into the Antarctic waters, Ant Antarctic islands in prehistoric times. My scholar and good friend Sandy Morrison, who is a Maori uh, from Aotearoa or New Zealand, has been able to document from oral history, from archaeological evidence and uh, passages that have been kept in the, the minds and, and songs of the Maori navigators, that uh, the Maori did in fact travel to the world of huka. Huka is the Maori word for snow. And in these uh, several discipline spanning assessments, she was able to confirm and um, tell the world that in fact the Maori traveled all the way into the Antarctic southern waters. What I'm trying to convey here is that a lot of the understanding regarding the Arctic, and in this case, the Antarctic, invalidates and, and uh, challenges the notion that there are empty oceans before, of course, the modern day sailing, navigation, and explore, exploration happened. In fact, all parts of the world's oceans, including the Arctic, have been used and known by the indigenous peoples of their home uh, waters often long before anything else happened. And uh, well, here's another friend. Um, he's Chief Nan Ying, Ying was from the Haida. The Haida people are one of the North Pacific indigenous peoples. They are living on an island uh, off the coast of Canada, shall we say, rather close to the 60th parallel. They are not specifically in the high Arctic, but I wanted to convey uh, some of the words by Chief Ying was to you. And this, this uh, has been helping some people to understand the implications of how indigenous peoples, if we think of the title, the unknown regions, or, or how do these uh, regions were known by the indigenous peoples. And I'm using here the uh, <clears throat> place name, or in fact, to be really precise, this is a maritime hydronym or uh, oceanic place name called Snang Kinglas. Uh, if you translate from Haida, which is, which is still spoken and it's a living language, even though highly endangered, uh, it's called supernatural one looking outwards. Why would I mention a Haida place name in a talk regarding the oceans? This goes into the limits of how modern knowledge and science operates, because we do know today that um, this uh, Bowie Seamount, as it's known in English, or the place name is known in English um, <coughs> as, as Bowie Seamount, is 180 kilometers west from the Haida uh, home islands into the Pacific, into the open uh, ocean. There are no islands, there are no um, landmarks as such out in the open ocean. It's very deep. And, and uh, if we look at the distance of 180 kilometers, it's pretty evident that um, uh, it is extremely difficult to navigate and position in the stormy North Pacific, um, the, the uh, exact location. However, this example conveys to you hopefully how indigenous peoples have known even the most unexpected fe features of the oceans. And as the chief in the quote here says, <clears throat> Haida villages are all facing the ocean. 
and the Haida have been dependent, dependent on the um, ocean going fisheries, trade, war and other things. But here comes the most important thing for you. The Haida as all of these uh, marine and, and uh, Arctic indigenous peoples had their own governance of the oceans and shall we say uh, cultural mechanisms like, like uh, avoidance of, of uh, bad behavior, over harvesting and, and uh, always trying to strive towards respect between different creatures that are keeping the Haida alive and at the same time uh, protecting what the Haida have. And I think the example of the Seamount and the place name that has probably linguistic history of 8,000 years is a marvelous example of the oceans we don't really know or don't understand because they're in big society, there hasn't been a good engagement with, the, with indigenous knowledge. So this is just an example of how, how the knowledge and, and uh, navigational and spatial engagement with the uh, oceans can look like in the northern parts over millennia. <clears throat> now the third person, and I do apologize that this this uh, um, um, this particular um, presentation focuses on the men. I can answer about the women's knowledge to the extent that I can in the questions, but the examples that I have seem to be male dominated, and that's of course a, um, a misbalance. But on the other hand, a lot of the harvesting, hunting and fisheries is done in the Arctic indigenous peoples by males when women then have their own specific and extremely important place in decision making and um, in the communities. But just to make that note and recognize the extremely important role of uh, women in the Arctic. This is an elder Stanton Katchetak from the small village of Unalakleet on the Bering Sea. If you think of where this might be, we are now looking at uh, a person and life work in the area where the continent of North America and Eurasia meet. So I'm sure that many of you have um, looked at the, the map and you know where the Bering Strait is. I have worked with Stanton's uh, knowledge and partnership with him or I, I met him in 2002 and unfortunately he passed away five years later. But for over 20 years I have been um, thinking about the ways that we can engage with Stanton's messages and science to try to understand what's going on in the Arctic. And in one of the papers that Snow Change pub published some time ago, um, I wanted to bring you here a kind of a dialogue between science and indigenous knowledge about the oceans. So in one of the oral history or interview um, meetings that we had with Stanton in 2002, he was saying that he first started to observe and place significance on the fact that ocean and the weather are changing about 30 years ago. So back in 2002, that was uh, referring to 1970s. But he also put a, a qualifier to it that the change is slow at first. That's what he's trying to say here. He was actually one of the oldest people in, in Alaska at that time. And then uh, he clearly positions that 1972 is roughly the time when 
when the ocean started to warm, things started to be very different. And that's, that's the subtle signs or the ways that he was trying to understand that in the ocean currents and in the coastal Alaskan context. Now, together with my colleague, we then worked on the uh, weather charts and temperature uh, data from 1950s all the way to today in that same place. And we were, we were able to find exact correlation, which you can see here, starting from early 1970s and then shooting up um, in terms of uh, temperatures and on that journey with a few odd years of, of uh, cooling, the trend becomes visible here on the left. I ho hope people can, can see that. So this is one of the ways that indigenous peoples are almost like you could argue the frontline responders, early responders, people like Stanton Kachatak, uh, who possessed a wealth of knowledge, a mountain of knowledge about the oceans with his wife um, and, and uh, backcasting or trying to position when when the large changes in the Arctic started to happen in the oceans, he was exactly spot on, perhaps six months uh, this way or that way. But then we were able to find and position roughly the same time, time scale where the actual <coughs> change that started then to speed up in a very um, um, speed or it became a speedy change afterwards in 1990s and 2000s uh, started. So that, that's, that's the uh, first half of my talk. That's where I was trying to demonstrate in some ways about the unknown region, the oceans. How do the indigenous peoples challenge our assumptions in the big society on how, was, how things were, how are the maps and who, who was where first, if you want to look at this uh, concept. By looking at, for example, these <clears throat> maritime place names, oral histories, or then indications of change, like in the case of uh, Yunalaklit and, and Stanton's observations, we, we are entering into a new world, a novel from the scientific viewpoint, for example, of course, for the indigenous peoples, this has been their existence for all these centuries. And the second, shall we say, bigger part of today, uh, I want to convey some points about how, how the indigenous peoples are belonging with the oceans and the coasts in the Arctic. On the left hand, you can see um, a map that, that's built on something called land use and occupancy. This is a work done by Inuit Trail Atlas uh, initiative that was trying to document, again, the un unseen ways the, the Inuit people in Northern Canada and Greenland. Greenland is here. This is the Baffin Island and uh, <clears throat> West Greenlandic Channel here um, have been using their land, but it has not been known in, uh, except uh, now over the past few decades. So as you can see, what looks like empty oceans and, and uh, um, the usual map of Northern Canada is actually trickled with trails, hunting journeys, place names, sacred places, <clears throat> communities, seasonal land use, and so on, and so on, and so on. And we'll come back to this question at the end. But this is a way of challenging how we perceive space, how do we perceive the oceans, and how do we perceive, of course, the Arctic when it's changing. Uh, so change cannot be understood unless we know 
what is actually there. And these kind of initiatives are one of the mechanisms to do that. This photo is from Alaska. This is an Inupiaq hunter waiting for the bowhead whale. And you can see a traditional Yumiak, sorry, Yumiak boat that they are using uh, to harvest the, the uh, whale. I'll offer you a quick quote from um, Anungazuk Herbert. He's from Alaska. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, but I think some of the points that Herbert is uh, conveying to you here really do more elegance to the whole notion of seascapes, oceanscapes, and, and the marine um, relations that indigenous peoples have than I can. And essentially the only word of relevance here is alliance. Most of the Arctic indigenous peoples think of themselves belonging and being in close alliance uh, with the ocean ecosystem. But the lack of better term, they are living inside. Traditional communities are and have been living without creating any stereotypes of <clears throat> noble savages or um, some wistful thinking. We can criticize, of course, human life everywhere. But the notion that we often miss is this idea that life ways of the Inupiaq people, in his case, as he says, covered a spectrum so wide and profound that it continues to surprise and, and uh, trigger novel ideas, new knowledge, and, and uh, of course, dialogue if respectful exchanges can happen. Now we are arriving to the, shall we say, end of this journey, or not quite the end, but close to it. And, um, I have tried to communicate then about the way of knowing the Arctic seas and the oceans, different ways of doing that. And then how, how indigenous peoples belong in the Arctic with the marine places and, and their home, home seas. Here is a case in point that, that then became about 40 years ago, a flashpoint between, or fla shall we say a conflict between the Inuit in this case in Alaska and I'm just using it not for the sake of uh, going deep into the uh, complexities of this particular case, but just to illustrate how do these two worlds meet? The big society, the modern society and, and global society and the indigenous peoples in the Arctic, especially in the context of the oceans. The four points which are of significance here are that there's a <clears throat> United Nations body that governs whaling um, around the world. It's called International Whaling Commission. Back in 1977, uh, they took unilateral steps to eliminate the right to harvest bowhead whales in the Bering uh, Sea. And of course, the bowhead whale in many ways, as you can see from the photo here, is food security, culture, relations, and whole holistic engagement with the Bering Sea for the Inupiaq people. And this led to a, shall we say, spiral of impacts of nutrition, culture, and alcoholism, and many other things in the villages when the whole whaling was, was cut. Much was done also by Greenpeace on the seal hunt. But the, just to illustrate this point, it was based on the notion that there are only 600 to 2,000 animals, and any hunting is uh, not possible in the Bering Sea back in late 1970s. 
this triggered many of the whaling captains of the Inuit people, Inupiaq people in this case, uh, to start to offer their indigenous observations of actually how many whales are there. And it led to a place where uh, the scientists had to agree that in fact, by utilizing, for example, different ranges of monitoring data, they had been wrong. And the good surprising news was that for, for science was that the Inuit observations of numbers of whales, stocks, and what kind of animals are out there is actually more accurate. And that's why I named this as an example of inclusion of indigenous knowledge in a very positive way. And now today, of course, the Inupiaq have a stable quota and they are able to practice this particular uh, subsistence and cultural harvest of a few whales. <clears throat> well, I hope you are still there. Um, the final thing before we can start to exchange has to do with the new seas or of course, the timely and very pressing notions of uh, climate change, what's happening and what, what is then implications for the indigenous peoples. I, I will just mention uh, some of the positive steps. There are, now that the Arctic is changing, a lot of you have seen the, uh, maybe the best indicator of the change, which is of course the the uh, sea ice charts every year it's less and less. We get record years of loss of that sea ice. The implication there is that humanity, including indigenous peoples in the north, will face a new ocean. And it, it's called Central Arctic Ocean. And that, that's driven by the loss of sea ice in the <clears throat> uh, around the planet or in the north. Um, now, uh, in a stark uh, difference to many other international policies. Uh, there was a, an agreement between EU, polar countries, Korea and China on preventing unregulated fisheries and actually taking a monitoring view as this happens. So this is one of the examples of how international community can act in the Arctic uh, in a preemptive and, and uh, precautionary manner and it also included indigenous knowledge and people's uh, engagement. I urge you and welcome you to look at the last Monday a week ago we release we did release the IPCC report AR6 impacts and adaptation and you will find in that um, documentation both from indigenous peoples in the Arctic and also science saying that species are on the move over half of world's inventoried species are heading up to the Arctic. This will have profound consequences for indigenous ways of knowing, food security and the existence um, in the future. An example of that is the Bering Sea 2018 uh, cold water uh, that prevented in the past waters from the North Pacific entering into Bering Sea collapsed. And the warmer species, algae and many other drivers entered into the <clears throat> Bering Sea causing massive disruptions in food chains. And that implies that the evidence is now clear and in place for the uh, changes underway. I get a lot of questions on what can be done. And I'm happy to try to answer that on those, uh, if we have time for questions um, of that sort. But one of the things that 
I have witnessed and we are partly doing also in snow change um, that links the oceans with, um, <clears throat> um, for example, those fish that come up to the rivers in the north to spawn. If we are able to strengthen rewild and, and uh, restore habitats that may be impacted by human use or some other drivers, we may buy time and possibilities for some of those species that are interconnected with the Arctic seas, for example, Atlantic salmon, trout, uh, and, and lamprey, and so on and so on. So this notion of what can we do in the oceans has to do with many things, but actually linkages to land and fre freshwater systems may be one of the solution spaces, at least in, in part. I welcome you to go to arcticseas.org. That's our website for indigenous engagements and knowledge regarding the Arctic Ocean and <clears throat> the coasts. There are over 500 different indigenous communities marked on that website with the links to videos, maps, oral history, photos, and cultural uh, representations. So it's a good place to start if you want to take a Arctic Ocean journey with the indigenous peoples. I close by telling you about a book. Um, I was thinking about this for a long time and then it came to me that in, 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 in UK and in Ireland and in Scotland, um, you have a lot of ocean around you. And one of the I Irish authors called David Thompson some time ago, maybe 20 years ago, he wrote a marvelous book called Peoples of the Sea. And in that book, he collected a lot of oral histories, folk tales and, and uh, living knowledge from the Orkney Islands, Shetland, Northern Scotland, and many of the places where the communities are still keeping a lot of interactions with the oceans. And he was able to build up a, a corpus or, or a base of knowledge around the concept of Selkie, which is incidentally the name of my village as well. And Selkie is a seal that in your culture uh, was believed to come to shore on special nights. And she leaves her skin on the shore and then goes and transforms into human uh, being, sometimes marrying fishermen or becoming part of the community but then returning to the ocean. There are different variations of this tale. The reason why I want to end in your culture and your shores with this notion of people of the sea is that all indigenous and traditional peoples in the North know we are interconnected. And the story of the transformation of Selkie, the seal that becomes human and uh, can become a seal again, strengthens the understanding that we are all related. We are all connected to Mother Ocean and never before she has done so poorly. So never before I have been um, thinking we should do <clears throat> more and more and more. And that's why I want to offer you a notion of hope that it's not all over. We are still in a position to enact what Selkies are able to do a transformation, but the window is closing rapidly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your, your powerful words and also those um, very uh, evocative uh, photographs and maps, which convey a lot.
Um, I see we have some questions. I had one, but I will go straight to the questions that are now beginning to flood in. And Tero, I don't know if, if you press the um, Q&A, you can see them. But um, the first question from uh, Brian M, will the, and I should say, we could get people onto the platform to give their questions, but it means we would have less time uh, for answers and for dealing with more questions. So I will just read them out and hope that that uh, works. Firstly, from BIMM, will the extreme speed of warming make indigenous knowledge of their local environments irrelevant, out of date? There's a nice provocative question to start. When I went to university, I, I'm also a fisherman, but I do have a science degree. And, and uh, I was told by one of the professors that there will be time for questions, but no time for answers. <laughs> let's, let's try to make better here today. Uh, <clears throat> this is one of the most profound questions if you think of, from within the culture. I guess there are two short ways of trying to um, answer that. One of them is that Arctic peoples and Northern peoples have always adapted. So there's no one fixated moment in, in uh, culture or um, being for the lack of better term <clears throat> that never changes. One way of trying to understand it is that uh, on the other hand, in, in these cultures, in if you include the Finno-Ukric peoples, in our cultures, we have had a core and some of us still have, there's a core that consists of wisdom, values, cosmological ideas about the world. How does the world function? And then on the outer, shall we say, co-concentric sphere is the living engagement with the ocean, with the, with the land, with the uh, animals, birds, habitats, and so on and so on. And that has always reflected through the centuries <clears throat> the, the shifting um, environmental conditions. However, this particular question is very timely. And as we say in the IPCC report that came out, there's a huge mental stress on many marginalized indigenous communities in the Arctic. For example, the lack of sea ice, erosion events, new storms, storm surges are causing people to evacuate in places like Shishmaref, Alaska. Uh, parts of Unalakleet are moving uphill Stanton's community where <clears throat> I have personally worked for a long time and so on and so on. So uh, many indigenous societies in the Arctic have to relearn and learn new knowledge. There are new animals, new species, uh, new interactions that are coming forward. And uh, the jury is still out whether adaptation and cultural relations with these changes can catch up but we have to acknowledge in closing that losses will happen. Not only physical losses, but some of the knowledge systems, um, ways of being with the whale, for example, or the seal will be lost if the sea ice is lost. And uh, that's why I don't doubt that the Arctic peoples can survive if they have the time, rights and space to do that. But we have to be very clear that the, the um, uh, knowledge will be impacted, including language. We will lose some of the sea ice words that are no longer there, and the rich, wonderful, incredible um, linguistic diversity that's embedded in those hundreds and hundreds of concepts of, for example, ice and snow. Thank you. So, 
David um, Riera from Miami, Florida asks, um, uh, what are the most prominent and primary issues that you and your own community face? And how can researchers and scholars like myself, and he's obviously some way away, um, uh, collaborate, support or help? Thank you, David. Um, <clears throat> and th thanks for the solidarity and feedback. I do appreciate that. One of the things I wanted to convey today was that the Arctic is not somewhere far away, even though you think it is far away, because all of the ocean circulation, climate and many other factors are <clears throat> closely linked with, the, uh, with your world as well as um, <clears throat> here. One of the linkages that might be a way of answering your question, David, has to do with birds. The Arctic and the North is the home nesting area of billions and billions of seabirds, uh, waders, and many other species. But then they will come to you again in, into Florida in October. One of the things you can try to help, of course, outside the human ac action supporting conservation or progressive things to do with the Arctic, informing people that there are people, uh, indigenous peoples, it's not all polar bears and melting ice caps, has to do with uh, rewilding and restoration of habitats in your place, even on small scale. Don't move the lawn. Enable it to become <clears throat> a natural uh, grassland, for example, if you own a house, or if you can participate with Nature Conservancy or some of the other groups that are, uh, for example, working in the Everglades. These are some of the locations uh, where Arctic birds will come for the winter. And more we can save them there, more we can offer space for them to survive and so on and so on. It will help also the North. And uh, those are some of the quick things that come to mind. Thank you. Carla, sort of builds on that same question, Carla Bywaters. Uh, it's evident we need collaboration between indigenous knowledge and Western thought. Uh, since we are better together, what thoughts do you have about how we can reach a meeting of minds more effectively? So this is a question about language, I guess, too. Yeah, Carla, thank you. That's, that's a very powerful notion. One of the complexities of what I didn't go into at length has to do with the fact that the Arctic, just like Africa, uh, some tribes in North America, they have all undergone a colonial history. And other people came and overtook the land, introduced diseases and uh, took a lot of the resources away. And that's why indigenous partnerships or engagement with indigenous peoples for solution space has to be aware of those things that have to do with equity, human rights, indigenous rights. And, and uh, it has to be something that's not tokenism. We can't engage with the Inuits or the Greenlanders or the Sami or uh, in our place, for example, if there's not tangible goodwill and evidence that the history is understood and then it's a level dialogue. I would, uh, shall we say, end this answer by, by um, thinking about something that, that has been called over the past few <clears throat> years now, especially under COVID. And that has to do with the fact that many faith leaders, wisdom carriers um, are needed together. We have heard um, invitations by the Pope, 
some of the leaders of, from the Islamic world, as well as indigenous knowledge holders to come together for Earth. Because what humanity, human, human race and, and, and uh, our planet needs now, in some ways, is not more science. We need wise decisions. How do we come together in a speedy and new way to protect the functioning of the planetary ecology? And there, indigenous peoples have a big role to play because they have taken care of over 80% of world's remaining biodiversity as con confirmed by science. So something is going on that they have been able to do uh, that the big society has been lacking. And that's why this kind of wisdom panel or dialogue between cultures, faith leaders could be one place in the UN, uh, of course, as well as on practical level on in management and, and uh, so on and so on. Thank you. I, the next question from Craig Hutton, I'm going to use slightly to ask a question myself. Craig asks uh, about uh, many young people uh, adopting traditional lifestyles and culture, or are they seeing migration away by the young? And another uh, listener also talks about how long can these northern indigenous groups last at the current rate of climate destruction? So those two questions may be a little bit linked. But maybe I can also just ask a very quick question, um, but don't take long over it, um, uh, about language, because I love the word indigenous, because it means so much in so many places. But the word traditional, how do you feel about the word traditional tarot? Because so often it seems to be used as a counterpoint to modern. And it seems to me that a lot of indigenous knowledge is very modern. And that sometimes we use that word in a respectful way, but sometimes we use it in a way which slightly um, colors the way we think about knowledge that maybe is better described as timeless than traditional or is uh, also very modern. Well, let's start from your side and then go to Craig. Uh, <clears throat> maybe 15 years ago in Canada, you know that the capital of Canada is Ottawa. And in Ottawa, they have a museum called Museum of Civilization or Civilization of Man or something like that. And the museum wanted to um, <clears throat> contract and commission a real Inuit kayak. All of you know what kayaks are. They, these are the ocean vessels by the Inuit that they used in seal hunt and, and journeys <clears throat> in the Arctic Oceans. And, and uh, the museum wanted to, to, wanted to do this really well. And this is not a long story, but uh, they commissioned this with the community of Iklulik in Nunavut in the high Arctic. And they sent the funding, they sent the request and all the Inuit carpenters and, and uh, cultural people were fine, great, we'll make a kayak for them and, and uh, demonstrate the Inuit culture and, and the living connections. And, and the museum was expecting this seal skin, wooden framed, wonderful <laughs> traditional boat that will come. Well, instead what came down was uh, plastic tops, metal framing, exactly well-made uh, kayak, but with modern tools available at their disposal and resources and, and uh, materials. And for the Inuit, <clears throat> that was self-evident. We are living in this time. This is a living culture. And, and while there is an engagement and relations with the land and the ocean, it's not 100 years ago. If kayak is made, it's equally well to be made from the modern sourcing 
as opposed to uh, what the old people were using. And that brings, brings us back to this notion that most people will make the uh, mistake of thinking in bina binary terms. They think of traditions and modernity. And if there is some modern Inuits around or Arctic indigenous peoples, they are probably all alcoholized and, and addicts or whatever, unemployed. And there, there's nothing there. But things used to be well a hundred years ago when Nanook was around and the film was made and they still were living off the land. Well, here's some news for you. Most of the Arctic indigenous peoples are still living in exactly the same places, of course, suffering from horrible events that happened like colonialism, diseases that wiped out 90% in some villages of the population and so on and so on. But they are still there. Uh, and they are suffering from, and they are benefiting from, just like any human society, same problems that are there, including this, what Craig is talking about, the outflow. And the reason why we have seen the outflow of young people or loss of culture and language, especially in the Western Arctic, Alaska and Canada, uh, over the past 40 years in very speedy manner is the fact that I started my talk by saying that we are living in an extremely fragile moment in the world right now, in the world. But it's equally fragile in the Arctic. If you have to compete against the TikTok, Netflix, money, and the trappings of uh, what comes from the big society uh, with your small and very uh, fragile cultural way of existence. And that's why one of the solutions here is indigenous rights. We have seen some places in Canada, for example, where land rights, cultural rights have been recognized, that there's a resurgence and pride and self-esteem amongst indigenous youth. They are staying, they are creating new music, new art, they are still hunting, they are going out to the land, and yes, they are living in 21st century. It's not exactly the same as 100 years ago, but they are still there. They are proud of what they do, and they are trying to address something known, and I will end here, the, the um, intergenerational trauma resulting from the colonial history, loss of land, and loss of culture. Uh, back to your point, James, many of the indigenous languages in the Arctic are in dire straits. We are getting only 20 speakers of the Haida, perhaps 100 speakers of the Even um, <clears throat> language. So this will be a critical moment. On the other hand, Maori, for example, have demonstrated in New Zealand that language can come back if there are linguistic nests and youth immersion early on. Thank you, thank you. Okay, Philippe uh, Blondel uh, has a very interesting and slightly more technical question. Um, he's interested in the acoustic monitoring that you mentioned um, for counting whales and how it can complement uh, local uh, uh, observations with remote measurements. And are there other ways in which acoustics can help communities? And uh, he's thinking of the influence of increased shipping particularly as one issue. Um, how else can acoustic monitoring help? Thanks, Philip. Uh, this is uh, timely, as you point out in your question, in the sense that sound travels in ocean waters very differently than on air. And most of the Arctic marine mammals, seals, beluga, narwhals, 
uh, bowhead whales and many other whale and other uh, creatures, even fish, are dependent on the fact that the ocean has the kind of sounds that they uh, can use. A classical example is, for example, narwhal. That's the toothed whale with the tusk, by the way, which was the inspiration for the unicorn stories in the medieval Europe. Um, <clears throat> of course, the Inuits knew that it's a whale, but back 500 years ago in, in France they, and in London, they thought that there's unicorns around and, and the proof was this tusk. But in fact, this tusk is a tooth and, and it's used kind of a, as a sonar when the narwhal is traveling in the, uh, in the oceans. And now we come to the second uh, side of things. When I was talking about the IWC notions of the whaling and, and uh, how, how the, uh, at that time, uh, acoustic monitoring was missing out on the population numbers of the bowhead whale. It was far more innocent time. Shipping amounts, traffic lanes, submarine noise, and many other noise factors were nothing compared to today. And we are witnessing a large, shall we say, amount and increases of not only uh, marine shipping noise pollution that affects a lot of the marine mammal um, capacity to navigate and know their, shall we say, sonic, sonic scapes out in the ocean and the ocean currents and the fish and so on. But we're also seeing something that I didn't really talk about, which is the proliferation of mining and energy production in the Arctic. There are many governmental ships as well as private companies that are surveying using geoseismic and sound-based uh, machinery and, and equipment where the potential oil and gas and uh, mining sites, including ocean uh, or seabed mining might be. And some of the Inuit communities in Canada have successfully fought this off so that they have tried to protect, protect their community areas against seismic testing and, and uh, the incredible amount of noise that uh, such actions um, cascade on in the <clears throat> marine environment. We know from studies on the west coast of Canada that especially killer whales are probably um, in the same status as thinking that you would go into a disco or a pub and in bath and um, there would be 140 decibel uh, um, dance music 24 hours a day next to your ear. That's the kind of comparison that the killer whales have had in, in North Pacific when, when the noise pollution has stepped up. And that's why this is extremely important um, topic that you are making. I could go on for a long time. I'll stop here. I'll just mark that don't lose this idea. The noise pollution, including from submarines and, and so on, is extremely important. And thanks, Philip, for that question. Okay. Um, Grace Harmon, what do the Nordic Council and the Arctic Council do? How does this collaboration work and how can it be protected? And uh, again, that's a timely question in the light of what's happened in the last few weeks, I guess. Grace, thank you. Um, these are two entities I'll, I'll answer shortly. Nordic Council exists between uh, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Iceland. It was built in 1950s, post-war, to build unity in the North Atlantic and Nordic countries 
those five countries that we have. Uh, however, the Nordic Council has a program for Northwest Russia. So after the Cold War, when there was so much hope and so, so much uh, feeling that we have to engage and um, work with Russia, um, there was the Northwestern Russia program that funded the environmental work, indigenous work, and many other collaborations over the past 30 years with, the, uh, with Russia. And now the Nordic Council has survived, but the Russian connection has been cut. And that's a tremendous impact on regional collaboration in the Arctic. Far more devastating, however, is the Arctic Council suspension. Arctic Council, uh, I'll make this in a sentence. So, <clears throat> which is of course when I speak five sentences, but isn't that always the case with men? So anyways, the, the uh, Arctic Council is a body that was founded in 1996 by all Arctic countries and indigenous peoples uh, on soft policy questions, environmental collaboration, climate change, pol pollution in the Arctic, including mercury and shipping and many, many other things. It was founded in 1987 when the Soviet leader Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, gave a very famous speech in the Arctic city of Murmansk in, in Northern Russia, where he said that the Arctic, uh, the polar regions should be a zone for peace and collaboration. And that, that then became a process where Finland first led the Arctic environmental uh, strategic network then that transformed 1996 into Arctic Council. And it has been the probably the most important uh, global regional mechanism to create assessments on the Arctic that have created huge conservation areas. It alerted the world to the dangers of runaway climate change in early 2000s. And it has delivered on things, as I said, on mercury, indigenous rights, uh, and a dialogue between indigenous peoples and science in ways that no other regional mechanism has in the world, not certainly the IPCC. And now it's suspended because of the war. And we may backtrack 30 years of regional collaboration because of this, uh, of course, understandable decision, but it is a great damage. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mary. Questions, um, by the way. On the somewhat controversial question of whaling, how could indigenous communities in the Arctic, in the limited areas where communities still hunt whales, cope in terms of food supplies if they are completely unable to hunt whales? And I do, I think I missed over an earlier question, which was about um, long term prospects for populations in the Arctic. But let's start with the whales. Yeah. Whaling, of course, um, triggers opinions and, and uh, the, the um, shall we say, <clears throat> resistance from certain environmental groups and so on and so on. And all the power to that. I think the, the uh, notions and the stereotypes and, and people's image of whaling, rightfully so, has been often associated with past whaling of industrial kind. We just, by the way, learned that Endurance Shackleton's ship has been found. So that's an indication of how the European expansion of polar areas happened through whaling and, and research and so on and so on, which devastated the whale stocks around the world. In fact, City of London 
had gas lamps that burned whale blubber, and that was how whale whale products were used. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> James probably remembers better your history, but 150 years ago or 140 years ago. The point that I'm trying to make is that whaling as an act destroyed the oceanic um, uh, ecosystem, including removing, and here comes the fun fact, um, blue whales out of the existence for the most part. And because the blue whales didn't poo in the water, it started to alter the carbon cycle and nutrient cycle in the Pacific and many other oceans. So there was a lot of cascading results from the industrial whaling. Indigenous whaling is very different. Whale is culture, whale is language, whale is food security, and no indigenous group, if they are able to maintain governance over their coasts and marine area, will take the last whale. In fact, in Alaska, for example, uh, the whales that are harvested number probably 10 to 20 out of a stock of thousands and thousands of bowhead whales. And, and uh, I do understand the fact that we have to stomach a very hard uh, cultural dialogue. The scenes, even in my presentation, I showed you how a whale has been cut on the ice and people are uh, harvesting that. But it's extremely important to remember that the whale hunt that ha happens by indigenous peoples is often at the nexus, at the core of a culture that has been there for thousands of years. And they themselves do have in their culture um, checks and balances of overharvesting. They will stop if there are no uh, more than a few animals. They will wait. But the hunt is not only about the food. It's not only about pleasure or a hobby. It's about a world. It's about songs. It's about the kind of engagement with the ocean and uh, living ecosystem where humans, and here comes the important thing, are not the enemy. In fact, humans belong. And the gift, that's how the Inuit people call the whale. The gift of the whale happens in a very profound communion. And I don't want to use wrong words, but in, for the lack of any other term, it's a spiritual connection between the whale and the people. And that whale that gives himself to the community does that as the Inuits believe uh, on purpose. So it's not actually hunting, it's gifting. And this is extremely hard to stomach, extremely hard to understand for some of you, but it's true. I have seen it my own eyes and practiced some of those things in our uh, small place here. So the, the complex relation that human beings and nature can have, have not been lost in all parts of the Arctic, despite of course, loss of culture, alcoholism, many disruptions have happened, but there are still communities that try to maintain an existence uh, for the lack of better term, an agency with the oceans and with the whale. And, and the whale is at the heart of everything. It's the world. And through that, the world is known. The songs of the whaling captains and the women can uh, offer us information dating back 8,000 years. But first and foremost, if nothing else that you will remember from this, please remember that's a world of wisdom humility and respect.
and the whale is a gift. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to um, skip down. Um, David, you've had one question, but we'll come back to yours later if we can. We've got about eight minutes uh, left. Um, so I'm going to skip to Beatrice. Um, uh, Paz, um, I've heard that your communities are the first to be directly affected by global warming, but also by the me measurements to diminish the impact of global warming enforced by states and private interests. Can you talk more about it? Um, I'm going to have to, yeah, we've got to try and fit in three or four more questions. So, Okay, let's be speedy. Um, <clears throat> well, most people forget that the Arctic has been a homeland of 40 different indigenous groups for millennia. They think they can impose many things, including wonderful science experiments or climate repair actions or geoengineering fast, because of course, humanity is very concerned about the Arctic overall. And that's why we need solutions that understand that there are locally based things that matter and fit the shoe from here. So that's why, yes, there will be more and more interest. There will be more arrivals in the Arctic. There will be more changes in the Arctic, but it's critical how we do that. If we are able to maintain agency and capacity of indigenous peoples in the Arctic, their rights and respect for that, we might have a fighting chance because they are the only ones knowing actually what's going on in that place. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, uh, and uh, we've had a question from Miami. I should mention that Beatrice comes from uh, Mexico. So we are moving further afield <laughs> and she shares that sense of solidarity with what can she do um, uh, to uh, support. Uh, and skipping back up to David um, Riera, um, as a, um, a black indigenous person of color, um, uh, he reiterates, what can he do as a doctoral fellow um, who is involved in local indigenous research to collaborate with others? And I think the, the extra thing David is asking is about preserving stories and ways of knowledge. Um, what are the ways in which we can ensure that um, the, the knowledge and wisdom it, built into languages is not lost. You, I'm sure, have a huge amount of experience of that, Tero. Well, I could be here now giving you a shopping list of things to do. <laughs> work with your local tribe, work with your grandmother, record her stories, and so on and so on. Time, in some ways, is past those ideas. We are now at the edge of the next choice. Okay, we are in a pathway, a crossroads. And that's why on the storytelling and knowledges, I would argue that there is perhaps ample enough documentation of indigenous knowledge, for example. Of course, you can always support and you can always engage. But I have a message to everybody that listens today. Make your own story and make it count. Break a free, break free perhaps even from the academic shackles that you might have. We are now on that um, extremely fragile state of mind, state of, state of body and society. And then each one of you has to do something new now. After 24th of February, the world became a different place. Some of you may think in Mexico or other places that the, <clears throat> the war in Europe receive so much attention because it's the 
certain skin color or privileged people that are killed and fighting each other. The complexity is that this war will not stay here unless each one of us do something completely new. You have to realize now your story, no matter where you are. We will realize it for the Arctic and the North. And you can join hands with us for peace and for love and for better understanding. I don't say those words lightly. This is not a kumbaya moment. It is a world of extreme danger and darkness. But we need to light the candle. And the only way to do that is for each one of you to light that first. Then you go and build your story. You live your story. Fulfill your dreams now. Take care of all of your lands for us. That's the best me uh, message I can ever give you. More you can have nature left in Mexico, in the Everglades, in Bath area, the better fighting chance we have. And then we can join hands for a global alliance and we might have a fighting chance. But the old ways of thinking about traditional knowledge, science, academic careers, may be over. I'm not saying that they are redundant. There are important skills in universities, important things we need to do in research, but the most important work we need to do is this one in my mind. Take this chance now to make your stories count. Make the new century matter like never before and do all, all that you can for this planet and then you help us the best. Thank you so much, Tero. We have just two minutes left and I don't think it's very difficult to cap that. So I think we will, um, <laughs> we will make that the, uh, the last uh, question. But um, I guess it's one thing I've learned from my own brief encounters with the sea is that it um, is not very tolerant of indulgent and self-indulgent thinking. Um, and uh, you've reminded us of that very powerfully um, today. Um, as uh, a resident of Silke, but also very powerfully, I think, as somebody who lives in Finland, and above all, as a citizen of, a, uh, of one planet, um, uh, I've spent quite a lot of my last weekend trying to write a blog for the Center of Development Studies here about the global implications of the war in, in, in Ukraine and why that isn't a Eurocentric thought. So I wholly echo that. Um, but let me also share with you very briefly, the most powerful experience of my last year was visiting Priest Island off the coast of Scotland and visiting a colony of storm petrels and being humbled by those tiny little birds gathering to breed and the thought they'd been doing that for thousands of years without human involvement and that these tiny little birds would be visiting huge tracts of the planet that I will never see myself. So with that uh, act of solidarity with you and also with um, storm petrels <laughs> and many other birds and species, um, let me thank you very, very warmly. Uh, we are gonna cut off rather abruptly in a minute, but I hope, uh, and I know that isn't the end of our uh, shared concerns and, and, and values. So thank you very much for articulating those so powerfully uh, to all of us uh, this evening. Thank you, and I join you in prayer for Earth and for peace. Thank you for listening.